Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst on a day to remember. Before this week is done, Joe Biden could be the president-elect by unofficial but reliable vote counts, which leaves nothing left but the madness of Donald Trump. Trump rattles on about stopping the voting or counting the ballots or counting only the legal ballots, but not the illegal ballots, whatever the hell that means. The question now is, what is your goal here, Donald? Do you really believe that you can reverse the election with arguments over whether people who fled the pandemic could still vote at home in Nevada? Seriously, even Republican electoral lawyers are saying there's no there there. And he may not even have the money for these fights he's bound to lose, even with his own judges ruling. So I don't think this is a winning strategy. But what's more important is I don't believe Donald Trump thinks so either. These are not 500 vote margins of victory like the one in Florida when the Supreme Court gave George W. Bush the presidency in 2000. Take Nevada, where Biden leads by 12,000 votes, several percentage points. What scares me is that this may not be about reversing Biden's victory at all. This is incitement, plain and simple, and recklessly irresponsible. Trump is stirring up the far right wing as the new resistance. These are men with guns and QAnon accounts. One amateur armed militia showed up outside the Maricopa County uh, polling site in Arizona, demanding that votes be counted, which was exactly what was going on inside. Let's play that. Are you Republican or Democrat? The only people working in this building are Democrats. Okay, this is dangerous. Uh, The group was yelling, you are fake news, as Brianna Whitney reports, and profanities to the press behind the caution tape, who's been inside reporting on the Arizona election results, which are being counted, not by just Democrats (laughs) in a Republican-controlled state. This is dangerous. A coup at least suggested that someone was in charge. The coup is done for. Nada. It's not happening. The election result will be certified and Biden will be inaugurated. But Trump's tweets and and middle-of-the-night news conferences are incitements to violence that he will not be able to rein back in, even if he wants to. How does anyone tame this far right? They have grown. They see Trump as their supreme leader, and they aren't going away. And they don't believe anything that does not come out of their little propaganda outlets that are being propped up right now. Domestic terrorism by the far right and white supremacists was the number one threat even before this election. We really need to brace ourselves for what it will take to calm these people down or shut them down for spreading falsities and inciting violence. Stop incentivizing their algorithm looking at you, big tech. This is the real law and order question. We aren't going to turn these people into Democrats, not even neoliberal ones. We're not even going to turn them into you know, centrist Republicans. But we can't let a cycle of political violence swirl out of control because Donald Trump won't shut up. Working people deserve better, even from Donald Trump. It's revealing how impulsive Trump is. We knew this and how Trump didn't really have a strategy beyond voter suppression. 
Trump had the one strategy and now it's it's turned totally kooky. The election is going to be over and you are going to lose in the courts, Mr. President, if you take it there. But he keeps going and his base is showing up armed. And our leaders that could be intervening, well, we have leaders not equipped to manage this gritty extremist existence in either party. Sure, Joe Biden can talk to John Kasich across the partisan divide, but I doubt either of them can talk to a band of QAnon followers who believe Donald Trump had the presidency stolen from him and tell them to take a breath or reason with them. We are entering something very scary, and we will do everything that we can here, at least, to help us navigate these months and years ahead. Today, we have an extraordinary show. Eric Blanc is here to discuss organizing in the red states and what kind of progress happened in red states like Florida. And later we have Representative Rab back to talk about what is happening in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia in his district. It is coming down to that vote. He's been saying it. And uh, we also have a run chowdhury on to talk about how we as progressives seize this moment from the failing neoliberals. Stick around, make sure to smash that like button, click that little bell to know when we go live because like last night, we went live with Tommy Sunshine who is on the streets of New York, uh, New York City, talking about uh, the police presence that is growing and in response to what? What? I mean, very few people had showed up. If you didn't watch that, that was live. Uh, you get those alerts by clicking that little bell. And of course, we put everything up on our Patreon account. So if you listen to podcasts like I do, Patreon is where you should go. Uh, we also put extra content on Patreon. And let's just be real, guys. Patreon is what's sustaining us. And every little dollar makes a huge difference. Of course, YouTube does do this too. But Patreon is really what makes this channel what it is. It gives us the ability to produce more content, to edit more content, to have the show put together live, which is much harder for us than doing it in you know, the way we did once a week before. That is how we build this show up. And I'm going to tell you, you know, this is a really scary time we're approaching. We need independent media. And I, I promise you, we won't be doing clickbait stuff. It's really fun to just constantly be at war with our, our, our least favorite Democrats. And we will do that, but we will do much more. We'll help you have a toolkit for where we go from here, how to organize in red states like Eric Blanc, how to understand the electoral numbers in Pennsylvania with Chris Rabb, who represents the highest turnout district in all of Philadelphia, which is the center of the world right now. What's going on in Arizona, Maricopa County with my friends in Arizona and me, um, who understands it a little bit more, and, and a run chowdery. I mean, these are not easy gets. So uh, this, this, is, this is why being a patron is a big deal. Um, it's how we are able to do these types of shows. So you can join us for as low as $5 a month. That $5 is huge. And if you can uh, contribute more, of course, you know, it just gets better. You get more content, you get a mug, you get a bag, you get a sticker, you know the jam. Patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We love, we love having to sell this show. <laughs> But that's what you get with uh, with independent media. All right, we will be right back with Eric Blanc to talk about what's going on in these red states. All right, welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Eric Blanc is the author of 
the brilliant book, Red State Revolt, The Teacher's Strike Wave and, the, and Working Class Politics. He is a member of DSA in New York City and was a national surrogate on the Bernie Sanders campaign. Eric, I'm coming to you right now live from Arizona, uh, where I, I've been this week um, during the election. And it's like the center of the world with like five other places <laughs> in this country. But what I find so exciting is that this proposition was on the ballot to fund public schools. Tell me, what are your thoughts? Yeah, for me, it was one of the big wins for sure of the election. Uh, it was a little bit off the radar for progressives uh, across the country, but it shouldn't be because this was the biggest tax the rich initiative nationally that won. Uh, yeah, it's major, it's major. And it's really a testament to the continuity of the strike that happened in 2018, which won important pay raises, but you know, really said, we're only gonna be able to create the schools, begin to move towards creating schools we need if we make the rich pay to massively fund uh, you know, the schools that we need. And the last time around, initially after the strike, they tried to put this on the ballot, the Supreme Court of the state sort of anti-democratically kicked it off. Uh, but this time it was on the ballot. And sure enough, when given the chance, people in Arizona voted in favor of their educators and their students. Um, Arizona has the 49th uh, worst public school system in the country last time I checked. Um, if, if that's, I mean, I don't know when the last time I checked, but that's the number I was hearing. Uh, folks, what is it? Folks who, who earn over $250,000 a year are taxed at what level? Like, do, 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 do you know off the top of your head? The specific numbers, uh, it's definitely over 250. I don't know the specific numbers off the top of my head. But basically, yeah, so it's, it's an increase on the top uh, income earners to pay for uh, schools, for pay for higher wages, but then also just for the really basic infrastructure that most, yeah. it's not just Arizona, you know, there's this constant battle between who's 49th and 50th, and there's about like five that, you know, are in that general vicinity. And so I, it does show that really there is a look, I'll say that there's a potential constituency, majoritarian constituency for our politics. And when given uh, the chance to seize it, people do. But unfortunately, they're very frequently not given that chance. Exactly. Um, I mean, it's. I think what's also interesting about this proposition is that it's, um, which will not be law, is that it taxes LLCs too, which, you know, we haven't heard a lot of, I mean, in New York, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> it's much more complicated. But um, it was amazing that they were able to push this through. And, and what is a very like pro-business libertarian, you know, style, uh, even with the Democrats government in, in Arizona. Um, you know, in, in, in Florida, we saw the $15 minimum wage uh, vote approved on, on the Florida ballot, even though a lot of folks that were Trump supporters voted for it. Um, shocker, people want higher wages. What a, what a concept. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think what was interesting about that ballot item was it flew in the face of the messaging, which has always been, well, what, what, are, the small, what are small businesses going to do? And, and I mean, even when I ran for office, our, our line, our, our ballot line was pay people more. And I was proposing a $30 minimum wage in, in, uh, in, in New York. And I can't believe how many progressives were like, but what about the small businesses? What about the small businesses? And it just seems like that message is not, it's not, it's not pushing through. I mean, even in a red state like Florida, is this, is this, what's to be learned from this? I mean, I think the big lesson is that class politics is necessary and it's not being offered. And so that's, you know, that's, that's really important because it's not just the economy in general. It's specifically talking to workers as workers and trying to organize and rebuild uh, really a sense of identity 
along those lines. Mm -hmm. And so I think that part of that is speaking to people's material interests, which the Democratic Party has not done for decades, right? Right. Um, But it's also explaining that their material interests can be furthered not by ragging on or at the expense of other members of the working class, but sort of in conjunction with them. Because that's, you know, Trump is able to speak to some people's real uh, material difficulties, but he does that really at the expense of others. And so the, in the absence, though, of, of, of a real positive, solidaristic vision of class politics, that's really what I think leads to Trumpism. And so you see in Florida, you see in Arizona, the potentialities for moving in that direction. But it's just so hard uh, right now to even start cohering in that direction because the Democratic Party really does everything it can at most points to stomp it out. So how were they able to get on the ballot, um, these, these propositions in a presidential year? Right. So, I mean, I know the Arizona case better. The Arizona case is a really good example of what happens when you have a union that wants to fight and push progressive measures. Because really, the the backbone of the measure in Arizona was the teachers union, which got revitalized after their strike and which has the resources to really push a, a agenda through despite the wishy-washiness of the Democratic Party. So I think that one of the big lessons here is that if we want to see on a political level the type of you know, social democratic, democratic socialist, class politics, I find it very hard to imagine that happening without labor movement retaking its place as sort of the backbone um, of the type of coalition we need. It's fascinating because you, know, you look at... Um the wins, like just talking electorally for a second about uh, like the, the big progressive wins. They've been in progressive districts, and it's so powerful that you you know the squads there and and Jamal Bowman and and Cory Bush, and it's wonderful to have those voices in Congress. But if we want to really shift the the makeup of Congress, we were going to have to get a little deeper and start electing progressives in in what is more traditionally deemed as, as swing districts and in districts in Arizona and districts in Florida. Um, so that, but, but that requires, that's going to require more than just a DSA. It's going to require real tremendous, uh, labor to get those people elected. Are, are, are folks really thinking that deeply yet about this next phase of the progressive movement? Have you heard anything? Yeah. I mean, I think that a, just to, to flag, you know, one of the DSA endorsed candidates yet, um, that won this week was in Montana. So, right. so, right. So, so there is, there is, uh, some work being done along those lines and, you know, and there are socialists organizing pretty heroically across the country. That being said, mm-hmm. it's definitely the case that, uh, we have weaknesses I and mean, there, there's a you know, geographic, um, concentration in certain places, particularly for national political elections, right. It makes it hard. So I think that it was a wake up call for a lot of folks, um, this week to really see how strategically central people, people I've known and have been arguing that, you know, organizing the South is central for the labor movement and, uh, really for reviving socialism. Cause as long as you have, you know, such a huge part of the country unorganized, you're just always going to be fighting with one hand tied behind your back. But I think that just looking at the centrality of Georgia, looking at the centrality of Arizona, it really hammered home, I think, to a lot of people who maybe abstractly know, but are like, oh, wow, you know, we could make a break, uh, not just these states, North Carolina. There's a lot of places that with a slightly stronger labor movement, with a slightly stronger democratic socialist presence, together with a revitalized labor movement and community organizations, you could really see um, speaking to building a coalition that doesn't currently exist. And in many of these states, especially if you look at like Nevada and, and Arizona, 
in Georgia too, this, I mean, Georgia's more the new South. Um, you've got the Mason-Dixon line politics of, of, of the Western states that used to be Republican. There's a different type of labor. It's not that, you know, white working class Rust Belt labor that the press likes to just beat the drum on all day long. It's, it's domestic workers and healthcare workers and uh, uh, casino workers and uh, teachers, of course, everywhere. Um, many are majority women held unions. Um, and it, it's and it's more uh, diverse too. So like, there's just like a different dynamic um, in terms of of how to make that coalition too, don't you think? I mean, like, what, what... Oh, yeah, hundred percent. That's what I find so frustrating um, a lot of times about the when people push back and say, "Oh, if you talk about class politics, really, what you're talking about is like white guys." It's like no, like not at all. The people who've been at the forefront of the labor movement. Uh, in a fighting sense over the last years have been women, disproportionately women of color. And so when you talk about thinking really what to rebuild a working class movement, it would be with a lot of those folks at the lead and bringing in people who used to be, uh, you know, involved in labor who might still be union members, but voted for Trump. You know, again, 40%, just like in 2016, 40% of union members, according to the recent, the exit polls we've seen, uh, voted for Trump despite the you know, endorsement of most unions for Biden. And so it speaks to this real disconnect of workers and union members included from the Democratic Party. And I don't think that you're going to be able to change that with just like tinkering around the edges of what type of centrist politics the Democrats are offering. Wait, when you say that number, that 40 percent, that's nationally? Yeah, that's the national exit polls. That we've done. So so in some of these states that um, I, I'm just very curious to see, like the traditional whatever you call Rust, Rust Belt states, the concentration is probably a little bit higher. Yeah, for sure. We'd have to see it disaggregated by state. It's going to look quite different, but it's still a troubling uh, overall statistic. Wow. And yet he still was able to pull off wins in Wisconsin and, and Michigan. And, and I mean, it's, I mean, it's truly fascinating. And I'd love to see the breakdown uh, gender wise and age wise. That's, that's going to come in weeks. Um, Eric, I, what are some of the other things we may have missed on um, in red states this, this last election? In red states specifically, well, I mean, I think that the big story in some ways is, again, Texas and the type of organizing that you're seeing there is really inspiring. So the the fact that it was in play at all for the Democrats is, is not just a demographic issue. You know, people talk about this in a really superficial way. We saw, if anything, the fact that Trump is making some inroads amongst people of color shows that there isn't just like some sort of destiny for people to move in the Democratic Party a direction. But in Texas, you know, for the last years, there's been serious labor organizing, community organizing, winning local ordinances uh, for living wages, for instance, fighting around immigrant rights. And, you know, DSA chapters together with unions and a lot of community organizations have really started building, I think, a pretty uh, inspiring left infrastructure that has set the conditions for being able to hopefully get rid of the Republicans, both on a statewide and as a national representation. Um, but then also sort of winning the types of labor reforms that we're going to have to fight for, even in the absence, obviously, of, you know, some sort of blue wave. Um, it's going to be that type of bottom-up organizing. So I find Texas uh, to be really inspiring with the local work that's happening. Um, and, you know, I think that you also see that in Nevada, um, which, you know, is, depending on how you want to look at it, as far as blue or red, is another place where you see unions um, and DSA chapters played a big role in a lot of uh, local races and in initiatives as well. So 
I think what, you know, we, we all have this fantasy and, you know, kind of fell for it. I even fell for it of sweeping the Senate. And by the way, we still could win the Senate. I know that everyone's ruling it out now, but for instance, there's going to be, um, you know, a runoff in two Senate races in Georgia. So, I mean, that alone could turn the Senate, but say, say we don't win the Senate. Um, and, you know, we don't control Washington entirely, meaning we, the Democrats, uh, we have we have multiple fights to, to pick here. I mean, in California, Prop 22 uh, passed, and it is unfortunately that, that that's the we'll talk about it in a second, but that could be used as a model in other states. Um, and so that's that's like a very Democrat. I mean, supermajority in California is so you're fighting the Democrats. You're fighting. Uh, for teachers, even in like New York State, we're still talking about education funding in New York State with Governor Cuomo. And he's like, he's too busy writing books about the pandemic and not actually dealing with, you know, <laughs> his state. I mean, there's just multiple fronts now that we have to fight and do it very quickly so that Biden um, hopefully is responsive to this crisis. So let's talk about Prop 22. And, you know, this was like one step in the process for tech companies, right, to, to make sure that they don't protect their workers. Right. So for, for I mean, folks, like Uber right, and, and, right. So yeah. for folks who don't know, basically what the Prop 22 passing uh, reversed uh, a law that had been passed in California, a good law, which would have basically treated Uber and Lyft workers, amongst others, as workers and not as independent contractors. So to make it easier for them to have better rights to organize and all of that. So it's an extremely dangerous precedent, um, and it does, you know, just point again to the fact that in an electoral system in which corporations are allowed to basically just flood the airwaves and lie, it's not always easy to go up against huge corporations, right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't even think in, in California, it's not the case that, you know, most people really, if they understood the issues well, uh, are like against Lyft and Uber workers. It's just, there's, there's the reality that there's an insane propaganda campaign you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars were used to. $200 confuse. million. Dollars. Right. So, you know, so you're up against, you're up against a lot. Um, I think that part of what is going to happen now is that insofar as the battle is waged, we are going to have to figure out how to really change the narrative because these, these companies have, they really framed it in like a very cynically uh, social justice way. They are doing this on behalf of the workers, right? And so initially, because most people just aren't aware of it, they're confused. So I think that we're gonna have to sort of really uh, take the offensive on making it clear that a lot of these so-called progressive corporations really aren't that, right? The tech uh, has this veneer of social justice that really has to be punctured. Same with Amazon, you know, in, in some ways they're even more insidious. So I think that's part of it. And it's sort of analogous to how we, I think we have to look at the Democratic Party. The fact that some corporations aren't like so uh, blatantly and like openly evil as others doesn't really mean that we can afford to let them off the hook. If anything, uh, that can, you know, lead to what you just saw in California where people thought, oh, Lyft, you know, because it occasionally says nice things about uh, different minority groups, you know, which is good, it does that. Uh, is on our side, and it's clearly it's not our not on our side. Disproportionately, overwhelmingly, people of color are the workers, right? So, you know, it shows how shallow that sort of um, anti-racism from corporate America is. It's so interesting, um, and you know, and oftentimes, like with these these early tech companies, I think back to the beginnings of Facebook. Did we think that Facebook was going to potentially be more evil than Google? You know, it took it took a while to kind of ease into whatever their their long-term strategy was whether they knew it at the time. Um, all right, let's look at a state like New York. 
California is fun. New York is, uh, is 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 real to me <laughs> so i mean andrew cuomo uh was on npr this morning i caught this interview with him and it was like i, I hit my head against the wall like six times in a row uh because you know he's he's pushing his new his new book about how he just like fixed covid that was it guys nobody nobody died in new york nobody has been sick nobody's lost their jobs there isn't an eviction crisis uh but I think the last time I checked, you know, 40% of New Yorkers were unemployed in New York City. I'm sorry, what? That's insane. So how do we deal as a movement with a, a state that did not win its supermajority, by the way? Um, everybody thought it was going to win a supermajority. We, New York City brought in a Republican congresswoman and may have a Republican congressman kind of overlap in, in, in Queens, but they're still counting votes. And they lost seats upstate. It's just mind-boggling that this could happen in new york um and we're stuck like it was already bad enough with cuomo now it's it's just gonna be worse yeah so i mean i think new york is a good test case again for like why we should have zero confidence in the democratic party establishment you know like less than zero um but it's also a good test case for how far we can get when we have an organized democratic socialist movement I mean, in some ways new york at this point nationally as far as electoral politics is our most you know, it's like the advanced guard, because for viewers who, who don't know, uh, apart from just AOC and Jamal Bowman, who people probably have heard got elected uh, to Congress and reelected in AOC's mm-hmm. case. Um, we also elected a very strong slate, swept our slate actually to Albany of now we have five um, democratic socialists, like, you know, and democratic socialists, not, not sort of people who got endorsed by yeah. uh, DSA. Like Jabari Brisport, for instance. Yeah. People who are, you know, who are real organized, who are members, rank and file, uh, union activists, Jabari was a teacher, um, others who are nurses who got elected on, you know, open democratic socialist politics. And it shows there is, uh, this potentiality for electing our, our folks. Um, and I think that the crucial issue right now is to show that when you have socialists in power, or at least in government, that they're able to deliver what the Democratic Party establishment, let alone the Republican, isn't able to do. So I'm very excited about seeing what um, our elected DSA members in Albany are going to fight around. And I think that ultimately, you can use this as a test case for A, how you're going to rebuild like a working class movement, um, because I don't think you can just do unions. You have to have both people in the state and outside the state. And you need to be able to deliver meaningful changes in people's lives. Like, I think ultimately that's what it comes down to, is that if you can have a political force that people say, like, oh, yeah, because of them and because of what I was able to do with them, my life is better. That's how you build a long-lasting, multi-generational, you know, strong progressive majority that can beat the Republicans and not just sort of periodically switch back and forth in office like we have right now. So I think that New York hopefully can be an example for the rest of the country too, because to be honest, it's sort of bleak on a national level with the impasse. And so I think we're going to have to prove and practice on a statewide level what working class politics can look like and try to build up from there. Okay, I'm going to push back just a little bit. We don't have the numbers in New York State in the legislature. It's great to have you know a handful join, but you know, we still have a majority Democratic neoliberal Senate and, and and by far assembly. And you know how it works. They, whoever controls the committees controls who has a voice. And of course, they're going to try to weaken the Democratic Socialists that get elected. So next time around, how do we win? We need to win bigger. We need to have a bigger map. And if if, if it means more DSA members are running, fantastic. But we, you know, how do we make sure that we're choosing the right races so we don't lose a couple here and there? I mean, it's just... Um, it's fantastic that we're having these wins, but 
the struggle just got like like 500 times worse uh and it happened like like that when we thought we were going to have more of an avenue to win yeah i mean I, i think you're right so it's 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 a really contradictory situation i guess my thinking on this is that even having a minority of democratic socialists is going to be able to change the political conversation and sort of drag other Democrats kicking and screaming, hopefully into supporting good things. And if we're able to use like our forces to sort of force the Democratic Party uh, to make some changes, I think ultimately it's going to be that that's going to go very far towards being able to keep the Republicans from coming back. Um, and because unfortunately we don't control the Democratic Party, we don't control. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure we're going to be able to like. They seem impervious to good advice, you know. I, I, so, I, so I don't really think I don't really I, I have very little confidence that even if like a good, you know, strategy document on how they could run their races was given to him, I'm not sure they would do it because they seem more interested in preserving the status quo than in you know making transformative change if it means even if that would mean getting a majority. So I don't have much confidence in. Them. I think we're going to have to sort of drag you know the Democrats in the same way we might have to drag Republicans if there's enough pressure from below then you can pass good things. We saw that in the states that struck and passed teacher raises in red states. You were forced, you even able to force Republican legislatures to pass teacher pay raises and funding for schools. So I don't think it's inconceivable that even though you don't have a progressive majority, that with enough pressure on the right issue, you can win. I think that's great. That's that's very good. And we should do it at the city level too. I mean, the city council is supposedly full of progressives, but yet, you know, is afraid of real estate and is afraid of of uh, of the of the police union. I mean, we we've got to we got to we got to hold those those feet to the fire too because when you start to pull back the veneer, you're like, oh, "Are they really that progressive?" Um right, exactly. So hopefully that's, right. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's exactly it everywhere. I mean, it it's 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 tricky because clearly uh, it's easier I think to pressure politicians when they're not Republicans. But the reality that we've seen is that, you know, in the absence of mass pressure, it's not very likely that the Democratic Party uh, as a whole is going to do anything either. Absolutely. Um, Eric Blanc, I'm, uh, we're going to have like so much to talk about in the coming months. I'm so excited <laughs> because, you know, you're one of the geniuses who's been really thinking about these issues for a long time. Um, I didn't imagine that we would have a, a Democratic, potentially a Democratic president and um, a more uh, conservative map. Um, to work with in 2021, but that just means that uh, America did not see <laughs> an alternative <laughs> to Republicans, and I think that's a great opening for us. So this is where your work is so valuable. Yeah, thanks for all of your work as well. Thank you, Eric. All right, guys, stick around. We're going to be right back to talk about what's happening in Pennsylvania with Rep. Rab and how progressives can seize this moment with the Run Chowdhury. Make sure to smash that like button, get into that chat, do all the things that make the show grow, like click the little bell, because like last night, uh, we had Tommy Sunshine on, who was on the streets with thousands of police and like five activists in New York. And I felt like that was a thing that we all needed to see um, because we've all been on the streets and supposedly there have never been that many cops on the streets of New York at any protest that Tommy's been to, which is like every protest in the last 10 years. So that's why you smash that that like and, and click that bell because you'll know, you'll get an alert. Um, hi guys. Uh, we have Representative Chris Rabb, who thank you for joining us because it is um, a little, a little, a little busy where you are. I think um, you're on mute right now. Both of you are on mute. Uh, 
Rep. Rab is the representative for the 200th District of Pennsylvania in the heart of Philadelphia, Northwest Philadelphia, highest vote turnout in Pennsylvania. It's almost like that matters right now. And then Run Chowdhury is a political filmmaker. He has worked as the official uh, White House videographer for former President Barack Obama and, of course, for Bernie Sanders as well. And he is live from Berlin where his book uh, is in the background. All right. Let's just start with Pennsylvania. What's going on? Update us. This is like better than CNN because I just watched a bunch of like map guys do the map and I was like, oh, we have Chris Rapp. He knows this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I don't have my, the, the the maps, but uh, it, it's all up here. So let me see if I can <laughs> distill, let me see if I can distill it. So we have um, a lot of mail-in ballots. The reason we have a lot of mail-in ballots is because we, uh, for those, for Democrats anyway, we have voted overwhelmingly via mail-in ballot um, uh, for multiple reasons, uh, not the least of which is is COVID, um, but also because um, so many of us have been waiting to 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 kick Trump out of office. We didn't we didn't want to wait, so that's the way to do it. It's the first time we've done this in state history because we passed the uh, we enacted a law at the end of 2019 uh, to make that the case for 2020. So our, our only point of reference is the uh, uh, the primary, which was delayed from April 28th to June 2nd because it was not just the height of the pandemic, but it was also after many many um, you know uh, protests and uprising here amid civil unrest and curfews and all of that. So. We have tremendous um, um, turnout. So my district, as you know, it has the highest voter turnout in, in the state in the fourth, on, on the blue side. And uh, it, it's been extraordinary. So the turnout is amazing. Um, I would say that my experience has been that my black voters came out to the polls and white voters uh, trusted the mail. <laughs> so, Interesting. Yes, they trusted why, why the mail. Why was that? They, what do you think? Um, I mean, I think black folk have earned the right to have the deepest suspicion of all institutions and processes in this nation. So I think that's the reason. Uh, better to deal with the, the devil you know. And so that's the polls. Hmm. So turnout has been extraordinary. Now, polls closed at 8 o'clock. There were no lines anywhere reported, uh, at least in Philly, because a lot of people, if they didn't vote early, they voted in the morning. So we had long lines in the morning and virtually no lines. I'm used to really long lines. In 2008, we had long lines uh, at the uh, evening rush. No lines anywhere in my district, which was fascinating. But it's so interesting because we talked to you on election day and you said that the lines in the morning were, the long, were longer than, than they were for Obama. Yeah, so yeah, they were um, in the black places. Now, in 2008, they were universally long. But so many, um, a disproportionate amount of white Democrats voted early. So um, the, the good showing at the machines was really due to black folk um, coming out um, on the day of. So we have a lot of ballots still being processed. And the state Supreme Court extended, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, tallying votes to mail-in ballots that came in after election day up until Friday, tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern, if the, the, the you froze, uh, oh, you're there, you're there? Postmark okay. by November 3rd. What's that? We, we, okay, we lost you for a All second. Right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, so if they were postmarked by November 3rd 
or there was no postmark, but nothing to suggest that it came in after November 3rd. And so those can't be uh, counted until um, after 5 p.m. tomorrow. But we can be able to predict uh, within reason um, who, who will win Pennsylvania potentially as early as today if um, the city commissioners in, in Philadelphia and a few other counties, most of which uh, lean strong Democrat, uh, will finish their counting in a matter of hours. Because now I think we're down by, uh, oh, that's the wrong map, um, roughly 100,000. Yeah. But um, I think we need to get 68% of mail-in ballots to swing to Biden in order to um, um, Close secure the gap. victory. Which and is I, doable, for sure. It is doable, certainly in Philly. Because it it's Philly. 90, well, yeah. this is beyond Philly. This is a number of counties, but these are collar counties around Philly. So these are suburban counties that have been swinging uh, a Democrat for a few years. And so in Philly, the, the, the Biden proportion is about over 90% for mail-in ballots. <laughs> so it's very high. For the counties, the other counties, and there's at least two counties that are purple, they still swing Democrats significantly. So there's a really good chance that uh, Biden can clinch um, this and surpass 270 um, as early as this evening, I think. But there will still be counting probably through Saturday morning. I understand the same is true in Nevada. Um, I don't know the status of Georgia, but my sense is if, 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 if Biden doesn't win Nevada, um, Georgia, or North Carolina, um, he gets Pennsylvania, he, you know, he'll, he'll get 283. Yeah, right, yeah. no, 273. Whereas 273. he's at 253. He's, he's yeah, at 253. Yeah, okay, so he, he could get 273. And then a lot of this stuff goes away, including all of this obstructionism we're seeing now. So the reason I'm in my living room and not in, in, in uh, downtown Philly, um, uh, I would be there because they have a count every vote rally, which are mm -hmm. happening yeah. you know, all over the country. But what's happening in Philly right now is there are, there are Trumpsters who are um, trying to disrupt the, the vote count. Um, it, was, it was paused from, for about 29 minutes um, and then it was resumed. Um, so there's some, there's some clashes going on right now. So I'm curious, cause you know, this is happening all over the country, but when, when you say it's been paused, they're on the outside. This is what I didn't understand about last night when all those armed, like amateur militiamen showed up in Mar Maricopa County. It's like, it was on the outside. Just keep, don't go outside. They're not like knocking down the doors. Why are they pausing it? Um, I think there was, uh, I think the Trump campaign was seeking an injunction. Um, I think there was some, um, um, uh, some confusion around it, but the city commissioners resumed just like within a half hour and they're going to continue to do so. Look, I mean, no courts are going to stop um, uh, folks from tallying votes that were um, cast um, before um, and up to election day. Now they may say, we're going to toss out every single ballot that has come in, you know, a, a second after, you know, 8 PM on November 3rd, even that I don't think is likely, but, Biden's success does not rely um, on such a ruling. There's a big enough margin of victory yeah. in that path for him to do that in Pennsylvania uh, without a positive court ruling. But no, no court is going to stop them from counting uh, duly cast ballots before and up to election day. So that's the good news. 
Um, the challenge, though, is um, while Biden looks to make a historic victory in, in Pennsylvania and nationwide, my, my House Democratic Caucus in the state legislature is shrinking. We okay. thought we could win by net nine. <laughs> what happened is they voted for Biden and then they voted for their so-called moderate Republican state. What rep. happens when you recruit Republicans to vote for you? you in the Lincoln Project is they vote down ballot. All right, so this, is, this is a really good transition because um, I said this the day after the election and people were like, how dare you say this? But it was true. Uh, Hillary Clinton, based on the margins, now understand, let's just start with the premise that historic turnout. So if you get more people to vote, you can close that 77,000 gap that lost Hillary Clinton the election. But based on the percentage, the margins right now, Hillary Clinton did better in 2016 than Joe Biden is today. And there's no better proof than Nevada, which Hillary Clinton won, just like straight up. But also just, I mean, looking at the districts in Pennsylvania and seeing like, like, Biden was supposed to be this this like working class, you know, Rust Belt speaker, like who could get all the sexists to come back over to the man. A run. <laughs> and and by the way, Hillary brought in down ballot races. You know, we swept in with with a bunch of uh, of Democrats across the country and obviously just got better in 2018. Yes. What, what what's going on, Iran? You're you're like you've you've been in the rooms with these these neoliberals strategizing. You've been trying to get their brains to process how to message to to their base rather than Republicans. What what, what are they doing? What what? <laughs> well, I mean, in the end, it's almost a very ordinary kind of like post two thousands election stuck into like a very unusual circumstance, right? Like you saw all the kind of friction spots being all the places that you'd think it would be. You wouldn't even really know a pandemic was going on. It almost felt like it wasn't a Joe Biden versus Hillary Clinton thing. It was sort of, it, you were actually sort of seeing more of a generic Rorschach blob versus 2016 when people either did or really didn't like Hillary Clinton, they were thinking about it. It really doesn't think, seem like people were thinking about Joe Biden or not thinking about Joe Biden when they were voting, uh, I think, which maybe speaks towards the dissection we should make of the kind of, Biden-less uh, content that was created, a lot of the kind of Biden-less campaign, the kind of lead from behind uh, campaign, which uh, I think I was on this program lauding last time, saying that that was a good thing they were doing was <laughs> was actually keeping him out of the way. So maybe I was uh, maybe I was wrong about that. Although we also all, all three of us were talking about how. Uh, if there was good turnout, that was interesting. And if there was mega good turnout, that meant that there were definitely some Trump voters uh, inside there. You know, Ooh. like, there's just- Or no just Republican voters. Without, like, you know, just, yeah, yeah, just Republican voter. You know, these like, there's a lot of counties out there. And if they all have little spikes, it, it just adds up to a hill of hurt. It really does. Um, messaging wise, I think it's important to say exactly what you said and say it over and over again, which is that Republicans came out to vote for Republicans because that's what Republicans do. The only people who were surprised by this are Democrats. The only, again, organized center left party in the entire world that works directly with their opponents <laughs> as often as they do. Uh, and progressives need to make sure that it's clear that the people making up the margins uh, of victory are reluctant folks and younger folks and more marginalized folks uh, who were specifically left out of the Democratic Party convention and messaging. This has mm -hmm. happened. This is a bill that's come due. Uh, and I think you're going to see 
um, progressives it, during uh, potentially a Biden transition that starts in earnest as early as tomorrow, actually putting the pressure and the screws to Biden-Harris transition team in a way they did not to the Obama-Biden team. Well, they're already talking about putting Hakeem Jeffries, um, Democrats, we're not talking about like a minority. This is like a real inside uh, Congress uh, conversation about replacing Speaker Pelosi with Hakeem Jeffries, who is from New York. Um, you know, I, I live in, I, I, I'm telling you, like, I've had very little interactions with Hakeem Jeffries and I'm like, you know, up everybody in everybody's face. I've been in everybody's face in New York. So I, I you know, he's not progressive. Clearly. I'm in Washington. Yeah. Yeah. He's exactly. He's, he's, yeah. he, he's a Washington insider, but I mean, that's their solution is just like change the face. And uh, it's, not, it's not a real solution and nobody sees through it. Everyone sees through it. And, you know, election for Speaker of the House is not some sort of secret, big, huge election you can put people over on. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows what this is. It's going to be Speaker Pelosi uh, or it's going to be someone who is structurally different than that. There's not going to be a kind of hot swapping, you know. So, so the, Denny Hoyer is never going to have his day in the sun. Poor Stenny. Poor Stenny. The guy has suffered so much in his life. Um, but the DCCC, which, which ran this camp, I mean, I, I, my, my theory is mm. I don't think it was the DCCC. I don't think it was the DSCC. I don't think uh, it, was, it was the Biden campaign. I think that we are in a situation, I think if, if, if frankly, this is very controversial, but I've heard a lot of progressives say this too, even if Bernie were on the ticket, I know it's hard to, 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 to look at it this way, mm. based on the makeup of who was down ballot. It's not like Bernie on the ticket suddenly means the DCCC has put a bunch of progressives in instead of centrist Emily's List style Democrats and, and you know, those, those types of, of neoliberals. You still have a, 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 a ballot full of neoliberals running at the local level and people know that. And Bernie on the ticket, I don't, I don't know if, if we'd have the same numbers. Yeah, I, it's a very hard one to, the because of the right wing though. Keep, keep that in mind. Yeah. The like nonpartisan, independent, um, fierce, progressive side of Bernie, I think, appeals all the way from the left to the center right. And I think it would have pulled in a lot of people. And I think one of the bright spots you see from yesterday, and I'd love you know to hear what y'all think about it, though, is seeing anytime there's progressive issues asked to exit polls, certain people people pull that every time, mm -hmm. uh, with a notable exception of Prop 22, which I hope we'll have a chance to talk about at some point. Um, uh, you saw progressive policy is extremely popular. And I think that any Democrat of any stripe running on basic social democratic principles would find themselves doing very well. There are no libertarians in a pandemic. Well, okay, so <laughs> I love that line. No libertarians in a pandemic. I guess what I'm trying to say is the, 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 the right um, that turned out for the Republicans was so strong and at higher numbers. I mean, there was a spike in Republicans turning out. Republicans who were not going to, they didn't vote for Trump, okay? But they voted for everybody else. And what I'm saying is, I don't know if Bernie would have helped that. Do you see what I'm saying? I think they would have voted for Bernie. I think they would have I'm believed that. They would have voted for Bernie, that's fine. But would they have voted yeah. down ballot for Democrats? Do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah, Top of the... Yeah, there we go. So we still have this disaster down ballot. There's a there's a phenomenon about folks um, having awful things to say about a political party, except for their representative. Right? Well, well, he's a good guy, but everyone else are a bunch of bums, and we see that a lot. 
Um, and that, that cuts both ways. I work with very conservative Democrats from coal country. I work with, you know, moderates, liberals, you know, a couple lefties, you know, but that's a real thing. And our, our caucus may have contracted, contracted in the largest voter turnout mm -hmm. in history. And that is something that we have to, to figure out what's happening. And I think a lot of what Arun said is true and how we govern in the minority for the last two years under a democratic governor in a tea party controlled legislature is going to be maddening, but that's the work ahead of us. I mean, that's what's happening in, in New York. Uh, they thought they were going to have a super majority and we lost seats. I mean, it's. Yeah. I mean, uh, they were popping champagne in Texas about all the things that the new state legislature was going to be able to do. And that, you know, that dog didn't hunt. I mean, there are, there are existing Democrats that have congressional seats in New York that did not win. Um, in a presidential year, which is like, so the whole theory, just to just for folks who may not understand this, um, Democrats have been saying for years, we've got in swing districts, we've got to run like the conservative Democrat. And if they run in a presidential year, they're going to benefit from whoever's at the top of the ticket. And that'll protect them in those years. And it's obviously the off years that are the ones that are more vulnerable. And so they pour a ton of money into, into like Max Rose's race and Staten Island or, you know, Ossoff's race or whoever. Except, okay, they lost. <laughs> I mean, Ossoff ran for Senate. And we see some of these things are just unholy money fires where just, uh, just amounts of money being spent on these races to get such little results over and over and over again. And at some point you have to ask if it's the dog or it's the dog or the food you're feeding it, you know? So, so we have to do more as Democrats and actually spend resources to help working people be candidates. I mean, this is just, it sounds so simple, but like, you know, but being- Well, that's, that's radical. It's expensive. You, you both have been there, right? Like it costs a lot of money. And so it's just naturally when, and when as you should see here's things like I'm self-funding, that's when they start to, oh yeah, oh really? They, but so they still pour money in there. They, they, that's that's the, still the first question they ask you. But I, I, I get that, like they're self-funding, but then they still throw in another $100 million or $200 million. Yeah, I know. So what was the Isn't point that where the acronym Emily comes from? Right? Yeah, then they throw yeah. more money than God has at them. Yeah, the, the, the acronym Emily's List, um, which is- Early the, money is like yeast. Exactly. It makes right. the dough rise. That's their whole theory. So they don't give early money, which Arun knows very well because uh, Emily's list, Arun's wife, uh, Laura Moser, ran for, for Congress. You want to talk a little bit about that real quick, just to give people a reference oh, point? Yeah, you know, and obviously ended up running afoul of the establishment, Democratic establishment who, you know, sought financially to punish her out of the race, you know, not only locking out resources, but spending resources in a primary of people who were, you know, worried about women being elected against a woman, you know, like millions of dollars. And not only does that, you know, hurt our feelings personally, but also you're like, this is, this is the people's money. You know, they're giving, they're lending you their money with a certain understanding of it. And so I do think groups like Emily's List have an inherent class bias. That is something we sort of don't talk about even in the modern democratic party that is so mired in talking about our biases. We talk about it here on Fridays. Uh, we have a show on Fridays called Fem Fridays, where all we do is talk about radical uh, feminist politics. And of course, you know, matriarch is part of that too. Um, on that note though, that's, uh, let's, can we just briefly, there's just a lot to talk about, but there, can we talk about Lincoln Project? Because this is like- Yes, yes, yes. <sighs> 
All right, Lincoln Project, uh, Republican-led, for those of you guys who don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars raised off of good, you know, Democrats who thought, well, that was an interesting ad. Yeah, I'll give to that. Uh, claimed to be organizing in states like Arizona, although I never saw that, or other other states. Um, and now they're using their data. That was all I saw, yeah. And now they're using their data. They bought a big billboard in Times Square. Now they're using their data to build a new Republican party. So good job. But what do you, thoughts? <laughs> How do we deal with this? Because this is the future. This is the future. It feels like a fetish sometimes. They do it so much, you know, appealing to Republicans, <laughs> Democrats. But no, sorry, Chris, you were going to say something. Uh, I'm trying to, to, to not be profane, but you know, look, they, they made some good commercials. That's all I can say, you know, and- it, You're a nice man. I, yeah, I, I think I, I'm just gonna- I'm, They I'm, spent a lot of money. They spent a lot of money on staff. The kindest way you can look at those reports is to say they spent a lot of money having people troll through Twitter to find good tweets to retweet. Maybe that's somebody's job. Maybe that's worth 63 million. I don't know. Uh, there is no evidence. Uh, in any of the paperwork, if they were putting ads in the right places or putting messages that we know work to move people to vote. And what's more, the proof is in the pudding. We had an election where no Republicans voted for the Democrat. Therefore, this did nothing except rehabilitate the reputation of some Republicans who would like to sort of scrub their past of what I would call actual crimes. Agreed. With Anna Navarro's tears as their ointment that they can scrub the crimes off of Anna Navarro, who thought that the Cuban vote was going to vote for a Democrat, which it never, ever, 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 ever has. <laughs> all right, guys, I am um, really grateful to you all. Chris, you got you know, Rep Rap, you have to go save the country. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Aran, always a pleasure. Uh, hopefully we see you guys next week, twice this week. I mean, it feels like the longest week ever, but, you know, good times. Uh, special love to who's in the chat. We've got Kowalski from Nebraska. Kowalski from Nebraska. I am so sorry. I didn't see this stuff earlier. Says an issue with the Hispanic vote was how the religious narrative went. Trump wanted church op wanted churches opened. And that was huge there. I think I missed reading this. Um, people want comfort in crisis. Absolutely. And I think he really plays the bravado. Um, you know, Latino vote is obviously very complex and people are starting to realize that because, or the media, I should say, I think that folks understand that. Um, and then, uh, for, and then Kowalski also says, for Trump, minority support was up and white male support was down in the Midwest. So we're not racist, we're misogynist. <laughs> Welcome to the lame duck, Donald Duck. I mean, I, 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 I do want to touch on that real quick. We shouldn't focus too much on Trump bringing in 1% more Black voters, Latina voters. We have to see if we lost, if the Democrats lost those voters, which by all means does not show at all. Because otherwise the whole narrative is going to be you know, when people shift, they've decided they want to fire you and they want to hire somebody else, you know, and so they, people decided they want to break up with Democrats and, you know, get our some small percentage of them are giving Donald Trump a chance because he asked. It's that simple. You know, he asked for their vote. I feel like some people feel like Democrats didn't even ask for their vote. Hmm. And but some of that also the, the, the Trump vote, the minority vote some of it is first time voters. That's what I'm trying to say is it's, it's not like they pulled from the Democratic Party. There was a very um, you know, they told you to vote, they showed up and vote, whatever, like you said. All right, who else do we have here? David, you guys are free to go if you want to. Um, thank you for joining us today. <laughs> David Legger, uh, Jeffrey, thank you. Thank you so much. Biden needs to reinstate the fairness doctrine if he does anything. Very true. Justin Curran says, it's looking like we'll be unable 
to stop gerrymandering in 2022 and beyond, further conventing minority rule, yes. What can we do? Is there anything to be done? Um, we touched on that this week. That is going to be a big focus of the show moving forward. Uh, I said that in my opening the day after the election. This all started in 2010 with uh, Obama's shellacking and then the fact that he still didn't invest in state parties the DNC and uh, organizing on the ground across the country. We've had weakened parties. And as a result, we have a weakened message where there was no message of working people, um, solutions for working people being spread across this country. And as a result, the Tea Party, the right wing was able to swoop in and capitalize off of that. So yes, we lost legislatures and it's um, we lost seats rather than gained seats. Not great. Marty Hunt, they said that they want to nominate Hakeem Jeffries to speaker. What the F is up with the centrist Dems? I think we just touched on that, so you know our feelings. All right, special thanks to Professor Harvey Kay and everyone in the live chat. Make sure to smash that like button. Uh, thank you to Mitty Doctors and Jules for working the algorithms. And huge, huge thanks to our mod, Choken, for keeping the chat room honest. Guys, if you're not a patron, this is the time. Please join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. It's how we do this. We got to keep going. Got to push back. Independent media is how we are going to be able to fight. All right. Take care, everybody. I will. Uh, we have a special show tomorrow. You'll see. Uh, but be safe. And hopefully we'll know who our president is by the end of the day, our future president is by the end of the day. Take care. <laughs>